talking last night about uh, the quality of freedom of heart-mind, call it nibbana, nature of mind, whatever, and how it's uh, only visible here and now in the immediacy of this present moment. And although I would imagine for many of us that our practice is really to come to understand this with sincere intention and uh, enormous effort, certainly not just this retreat, but you know, if we're on the path, it, it becomes our whole life. But still, the kind of uh, catch-22, if you will, I don't know if, if non-Americans, that's a, uh, a reference to a book that is kind of like circular, okay. Um, I was only one non-American, I'm letting you be a sample of everyone. Um, the catch-22 is that as hard, as sincere as we may be, if we keep looking through the same set of deluded, confused lenses on our perception, everything we do to try to understand things as they are, to try to free our heart and mind, just kind of keeps on keeping us going in the same round, and we can't really get it, what we're doing, because we only seeing in the same way. Remember, and then when, when those moments, and it can just be moments when, oh, yeah, that's how it really is. It's so immediate. I remember reading years ago, some, some Tibetan, famous Tibetan teacher was saying to his teacher, oh, why didn't you tell me? It was like this, closer than my own eyelid. So does that help us? No. <laughs> closer than my own eyelid. Okay, got it? No, because <laughs> we keep on looking, you know, in the wrong way. This is from the Dalai Lama. All things, including nirvana, arise from causes and conditions. To find happiness, it is indispensable to have a correct view of the nature of mind and the world. What is meant by right view is not faith or believing in a particular dogma, but a clear understanding that is reached through thoroughly examining reality. This kind of examination will refute the belief in the independent existence of things, which is the root of our distorted vision of the world and vision of ourselves, and replace it with the right view. The right view which implies a recognition that the nature of Buddhahood, this is Tibetan language, the nature of liberation, is the essence of our own mind, our fundamental cognitive ability, luminous and pure without confusion. You say our, that's just a way of speaking, but this natural purity of cognition, luminous and pure. It also involves, right view, identifying the factors that keep us from perceiving this nature so that it becomes possible for us to abandon them or at least to stop feeding them. So a lot of our practice of mindfulness is about seeing and identifying these factors. And the seeing itself is what's liberating. So tonight uh, I want to... Uh, talk about the first of the Four Noble Truths. I'm hoping to have one talk on each of the four, but you never know how it goes. Things get sidetracked, other things happen, but we're starting with the first tonight. As um, 
in a way, from my limited understanding as not being a scholar, that all different schools of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, as the essence uh, sharing of the Buddha is uh, central to all of them. And it's sort of like he, you know, when he had, had to distill what is it, okay, is this a little longer than just nothing whatsoever is to be clung to? But that's at the heart of the Four Noble Truths. But it's sort of like, these are the four facts of life, okay? And I'm sure you're familiar, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. But the, the Four Noble Truths essentially is the first, the truth of dukkha. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight, and I'll unpack that word. Um, the second, the, the cause of dukkha. The third is the ending of freedom from, cessation of dukkha. And the fourth is the Eightfold Noble Path path of, of walking, of life, of practice. And so I want to talk about this first one, the truth of dukkha. And each of them has an action. I'll just stay with this. The truth of dukkha is to be understood. To be understood. That's all. And so it's like the Buddha saying, what do we need to know to, to free our hearts and minds from these habits of misperceiving that keep us from being so immediate, closer than our eyelid, that keep us looking elsewhere. So I said, okay, the first thing is just to know and understand this truth of dukkha. So certainly I can't do a comprehensive, and it's something that we keep understanding and learning more and more subtlety, more and more depth in my experience my whole life. It just keeps on going. There keeps on being more to see in my own mind and heart. Again, as the Dalai Lama said, this isn't about understanding conceptually a dogma. And if we can understand and remember it, that's what's going to do it. This is all, understanding dukkha is uh, an invitation to this investigation into the nature of reality that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was talking about. And as Greg, I think it was Greg, said, the nature of reality that's accessible to us is this mind-body process. Each of us experiences moment to moment our own, so to speak, mind-body process. How amazing that all the confusion but all the truth of the way things work can be experienced and revealed by exploring with open-hearted interest this mind-body process. And so what we come up against when we start and as we keep going is wham, this truth of dukkha. So, to talk about it, so certainly, as I said, not comprehensive, but some reflections I just want to share. So, dukkha is often translated as the truth of suffering, and I don't want to translate it that way, because when we hear the word in English, suffering, how closely related is aversion when you hear that word? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty hard. Oh, yeah, the truth of suffering. Oh yeah, that's what people say about Buddhists. They're really downheads. Everything is suffering. Life is suffering. Have you heard that as one um, description of the first noble truth? Life is suffering. Well, yeah, let's embrace that. And how does understanding that free our heart and mind? It's like, please, you know, I think I need to go somewhere else. So (laughs) suffering, as a translation, it's often used, but maybe not, not so helpful, not so useful in terms of understanding really the subtlety of what the Buddha is trying to introduce us. And remember, understanding this 
if we really understand it, even just in a moment, in that moment, it is freeing us from, and I'm going to use unnecessary suffering, the suffering of reactive mind, reactive heart, because we're not recognizing accurately. So I, I love talking about this first noble truth because the more I understand it, the more ease and peace and contentment I feel with life as it is. It doesn't mean life as it is has suddenly become, you know, like a rosy hue. If anyone who really knows me knows, I am not the world's biggest optimist. And it's not like, yes, I just see everything's just moving along and it's going to all be perfect in a perfect world. You're never going to hear me say that. (laughs) But the understanding, the sense of understanding what dukkha means, really getting it means not being in contention with reality. And this is incredibly powerful. So talking in a lot of different ways. So one of the ways of describing the word dukkha from the Venerable Analayo, who is another um, really preeminent translator, he's German, but a uh, German monk uh, in the Theravada tradition, but he's done a lot of translating into English. So he talks about the, the word itself, dukkha, as the one way of breaking it apart is the do part is like difficulty difficulty, not standing well, just difficulty. And one one definition of the ka part is, remember this is back from 2,600 years ago in rural India, is the, the, you have an ox cart with these two big wooden wheels and just solid wood and just a hole in the middle of the wheel where the axle goes through for the two wheels. So, So the difficulty of standing badly, the way this cart wheel rolls with this hole and the pole going through it, not smooth, not relaxed, just uh, uh. and still today I've ridden on an ox cart. I'm here to tell you that's a really good definition. (laughs) It's just not comfortable. It's just not easy. Kind of just a little bit of disharmony, a little bit of friction. Whereas as Ruth Dennison, who's a a, a great teacher, really quite old now, she says, you know, that little leak in the canoe. There's just always a little something shows up. Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as the, the basic uh, sense, or it comes up from time to time, not every moment, of unsatisfactoriness or incompletion that runs through our lives. It's not that every moment is horrible suffering. It's not that. Um, so this is one way of thinking about dukkha, this uh, unreliability, as, as Greg uses a word we often use, this kind of incompleteness, this unsatisfactoriness. And then the Buddha, um, as he was wont to do, being quite precise, talks about it in three different aspects. And this is where it's, it's a challenging, very challenging teaching, uh, both just to talk about to hear, and then to keep on looking at in our lives in all these three aspects. So um, the first, this is Sariputta, the Buddha's main disciple, describing as someone. There are, friend, these three kinds of dukkha. The stress, the discontent that arises just due to pain, due to difficult things that happen. The second is the, the discontent um, that arises due to change, the parinama dukkha. And this is really when, 
when beautiful, pleasant things are occurring, and they do, they're also included within dukkha, not because they're not beautiful and pleasant, but because they're unreliable. Go away. And the dukkha due to formations, which is um, the sankara dukkha, that's called. Sankara is any fabrication coming together, going apart, this sense of endless coming together, going apart. And I'll talk about that a little bit in, in each of the three. So the first one, in a way, it's the most obvious, and in another way, in terms of really opening to understanding, it's immensely challenging, I find, in, in our practice here and in our daily lives, and in just in our mind even being able to wrap around it enough to be willing to look. Not that we can totally understand, but even to meet it. So this is how he's describing this dukkha dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, illness is dukkha, death is dukkha. I mean, we wouldn't argue with this, right? It's unsatisfactory. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair all occur. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. And what he's saying, I mean, probably, I'm guessing none of, uh, up to now, we could maybe be on the same page. Probably no one's saying, yeah, I don't think that's not dukkha. That's, that's great. I love not getting what I want. You know, it's like, but what he's saying is this is just a fact of life. That this is what occurs at times to everybody. Everybody. You know, no one here gets out alive. To everybody. And so this is where people go, okay, well, that's really inspiring. Um, <laughs> but mostly what I'm here to talk about, my way that I want to talk, is not to try and convince you all or me that this stuff really happens, <laughs> you know, but to look at why do we need to understand it? Why did the Buddha think, I need to tell you this stuff, that you can understand it, you know, because that's how our mind relates to it. So I want to say in terms of um, this first dukkha, the dukkha of pain, the dukkha of loss and despair and lamentation, the Buddha's talking at where we can explore, where we can investigate is in a way in our personal moment-to-moment experience in our mind and heart of um, dukkha dukkha. I'm going to use suffering for dukkha dukkha, unpleasant, painful, difficult things occurring in our own mind or occurring to us from the so-called outside, you know, but occurring. Maybe it could be grief, it could be sadness, it could be illness, it could be job loss, it could be someone externally uh, really treating us badly, it could be systemic, it could be cultural. It's not saying that um, bad stuff doesn't happen, and I'm using bad, you know, in our kind of normal way, when he talks about understanding, not being in contention with this, I want to say in terms of the, the bigger world, the sense of the incredible amount of violence, hatred, injustice, homophobia, racism, poverty, economic inequality, you, you name it. When, when the Buddha says coming... Uh, not being in contention with reality, that the freedom 
really comes from our being able to really be with this dukkha without fighting with it. Remember, he's talking about the immediacy of what's occurring in this moment, what's happening in this moment. Two of the ways, and this is in the broader way, but then I'll go more precise, two of the ways we get really uh, lost in reactivity. One is the obvious one of just aversion, anger, fear, moving into the realm in our reaction either to what's happening or to ourselves or blaming ourselves or hating others or just all-out denial so that our heart and mind is overwhelmed by anger, a fear, aversion. You know, so that, that's maybe more the obvious way. Another way that sometimes we hear more intellectually until we really get it on a cellular way, then we understand different. But often when, I talk, when we talk about that the freedom comes from not being in contention with this moment of reality, then we hear it as a kind of passivity. You know, that, that the Buddha is saying then we can't respond or try to change anything in this world or in our life. Have you sometimes felt that that's, that's what the teaching is, that, that when we use the word acceptance, it's often heard in that way. I just have to accept, and it can lead into you know, either a kind of, of self-blame, whatever bad happens is my fault, or else it's hopeless, or a kind of a victimhood, or else a, a reactivity to that. What do you mean we can't change? That's crazy. And so that's not what it's saying at all. Understanding in a moment, not being in contention with this moment's experience is what allows for the clear seeing, the clear recognition of what's occurring that can allow in the next moment, if a response is appropriate or possible, for that to occur. The next, how the mind-heart is awake and present in this moment becomes a cause, a condition for what arises in the mind-heart in the next moment, right? So if we're filled with aversion and feeding aversion and feeding anger and confusion, that's much more likely to lead into the next moment. When just in a moment we can drop into, this is what's happening now. And yeah, it's horrible. We're not saying it doesn't make it nice. This is horrible. But the immediacy of the presence, not the concept, then that moment of non-aversion, of clear seeing wisdom, allows for a clearer recognition and a more appropriate response. So just, I'm saying at the beginning, hopefully I have time to talk a little at the end, but I just want to really make it clear as I move into talking more about the, the freedom that comes from, only comes from total presence with this moment, that that acceptance, that non-contention is not passivity into the future or like stupidity or rolling over like a doormat and not responding at all. It allows for really clear seeing and a strong response. So... One way that um, this not being in contention, that's not passivity, is recognizing that we all at different times will experience to different degrees all that stuff that the Buddha mentioned. And we each to differing degrees, you know, have our uh, personal experience uh, our cultural experience, our familial experience, our community experience, whatever, different for each of us. And so the Buddha is 
talking in terms of these Four Noble Truths, of this First Noble Truth, of that's all true, and it's not uh, uh, at all uh, a justification or an apology for the injustice and the violence in the world. It's not that. But the place that we can start to free our heart and minds is right here. And that takes a willingness to drop in right now when I feel, you know, oh, I can't bear to be with this. Okay, what is it I can't bear to be with? Just exploring it with kindness. It's not in contention. So a place that I find really uh, instructive to me to look at in terms of this balance is the, the, Buddha, the Buddha's life himself, little parts of his life after he was enlightened. What did he do with the 45 years of his life after he woke up and became the peaceful one, free from suffering, free from confusion? You know? And he made choices. He, just, he did not live 45 years, a life of just passivity, hanging out in some realm of heavenly beauty. Like the sutras tell us maybe he could have done that, that that's a choice he could have made. I mean, who knows? I don't know. But that's in the sutras, that that's a choice he could have made. But the choice he made was by, by tuning in to the beings, the humans in the world, and this is part of the, the vastness of a Buddha's mind can kind of, you know, empathetically feel what's going on. And seeing the suffering, he didn't say, well, yeah, that's just how it is. Just be with the suffering. That's how it is. Not in contention with reality. That's how it is. No, his clear seeing, it, it, the, the heart, the jewel in the heart of, of freedom, in the heart of understanding dukkha, is compassion, is this ability to bear witness to the difficulty, the unhappiness, the dissatisfaction in our own mind and heart, and to be present with that in others. And when our mind, our heart, our response is not clouded or distorted by aversion, by ill will, by clinging, then we can make choices. We don't make them. Intention makes them. Let's not even go there any further than that. But (laughs) choices are made. Choices arise due to causes and conditions arising in the mind, and they coalesce into an intention in a moment. And then the Buddha had the intention to share what he knew out of compassion for the world. That intention would keep arising for 45 years. So certainly not passivity, but quite uh, ongoing, engaged activity for the good of beings. If an understanding of dukkha meant it's all hopeless, nothing can change, he wouldn't have bothered, right? You figure, I figure, he wouldn't have bothered. If the understanding of reality meant it's like this in this moment, and it'll always be like this. Change isn't possible, so the heck with it. He wouldn't have gone teaching, walking up and down India barefoot, begging for his meals every day. Think about it. Does that sound really very comfortable? When you think about waking up, do you think about, you know, you're still going to have your backache? He did. There's suttas where he had to lie down, and he goes, Ananda, you give the talk. I have to go lie down. My back hurts. Or he'd have a headache. Stuff happened. You know, his kinsfolk on both sides of his mother and father went to war over water rights. His awakening couldn't stop the stupidity and the violence and the greed in the world. 
He couldn't change the world. I mean, here we all are, you know, 2,600 years later, really sincere, really, you know, wanting to cultivate wisdom and kindness and compassion. And that's a beautiful, what a great thing that this is a path that's still alive. Out of others, there's many, but that this is a path that's still here. But he couldn't fix the whole world. He couldn't even fix his kinspeople. But he didn't just sit and go, well, they're killing each other. What to do? You know? <laughs> he did what he could do. He went and, you know, he talked to them. He really mediated. He did, you know, help them come to some conclusion. He did kind of stop that particular moment of violence based on greed and water rights and fear, you know. So he was active. It wasn't a life of passivity based from compassion, based from clear seeing, from an ability to be with all these painful things happening and then to respond in a way that's sensible, that's appropriate, that isn't put off by the suffering but but isn't um, lost. So when we perceive correctly, when we perceive correctly, the heart-mind is... It's free. It's open. There's that moment of purity, the potential, just for a moment, to, you know, just be here so fully that whatever's occurring is just recognized as it is. It doesn't become a source of suffering for us. We don't then act out of it as suffering for others. Try to decide what order to go in. Okay, I'll stay with dukkha, dukkha. So, talking about why it's so difficult for us. Because again, like, it's, it's, it's obvious that this stuff all happens. And then still really in there, so often, the, the way moha, delusion, can show up in our minds in a moment. Lots of different ways. One way is this is kind of denial. This isn't happening, or it's not going to happen or I know it intellectually, but we don't really let it in. That we're each going to die is the classic example of that, right? And I notice the more older I get, it's like a little, little closer that I have to notice it. But not really, not yet. There's like 20 more, whatever. There's a way it's just not quite in there. How often when something, now I'm talking about our immediate life, right? When something goes wrong, there's a loss or an illness, or we hurt ourselves, or something really appalling happens to us from outside. We were just minding our own business. The sense of the denial that this is not supposed to happen is often so strong, even just with illness, which I have a lot of you know, personal experience of. It's quite easy for the mind to slip into, yeah, I know, but if I was really pure enough if I was practicing, if I had enough understanding, this illness, this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Somehow I did something wrong, you know? And a sense of, for, for often, when someone is ill or you're suffering grief or loss, we're ashamed. It can be this sense of shame and almost where the... the this, the dukkha dukkha, the suffering, can, can take us into a sense, at times, of alienation. I mean, in a way, we each suffer alone. If I'm really having a migraine, there can be empathy, but no one else can really have it with me, 
you know. Not that I would wish someone to have it with me, but no one really can. So in that way, it's true. You know, you're experiencing what you're experiencing in this moment. But the next moment, someone else is experiencing. And we all experience all these aspects of loss of what we love, of being together with what we don't like, of old age, birth, sickness, death, the stuff that goes on in the world, the violence, the injustice, different ways we all are impacted. And what's so fascinating is how, at times, it can just be this sense of, no, when bad stuff happens, it's a mistake. It's wrong. And I often, the, our tendency to turn it against ourself can become this kind of self-judging, um, what did I do wrong to be experiencing this? So that's aversion, right? You're aware that's aversion. And that's our, the, the habit of mind to unpleasant is aversion. Push it away. Blame inside, blame outside. Because this isn't supposed to be happening. This is one of the places this is challenging when we think of the injustice in the world. Because if we say in the moment, this, whether it's supposed to be happening or not, is a moot point. It is happening. In this moment, it is happening. This particular moment can't be any different because it's already here happening. That's what not being in contention with reality means. It doesn't mean saying it's right, it's appropriate, let's support it to continue. It's saying this is what's happening. And when the heart, the mind, is um, meeting it with aversion, fear, blame, any sort of aversion, it pushes away the experience such that we can't recognize accurately. We can't recognize accurately. So it keeps us in that cycle of more delusion, not recognizing accurately or being able to respond appropriately. And it's amazing, the, the power of denial. Sometimes I think I should give a whole talk on it. It's an, it's an amazing power in the world. Have you ever noticed, like, if you've been in a relationship that lasted some time and broke up, probably no one here has had that experience. And at the end of it, in the beginning, everything's so lovely. That's why you get in the relationship, right? You don't get in it going, oh, this is going to be horrible. You really think it's going to be great and the person's so wonderful. And then at the end, when it ends, whichever way it ends, good, bad, you know, it's never really, you can see. I mean, I've seen for myself, the things that really came together to make it break apart, that wasn't like new information, that was like something I knew the day I met the person, right? Me and the person, and we knew them. Oh, no, 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 that's not even happening. It's like, I don't even know that. That's not really true. I'm not even going to look at that. It's almost like my mind can almost see it doing that. I'm just not going to go there. And that'll just make it not be true. <laughs> if we ignore it enough, it won't be true. It <laughs> doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way. But denial's amazing. I read... Um, Years ago, a little, little article in the New York Times about some small town in Spain where I didn't have it, I couldn't find it now, but said the mayor, the, the cemetery is getting too full. There's no more space to bury people who die. So the mayor has proclaimed a temporary moratorium on death <laughs> until they can get, find more land for a new cemetery. I mean... This was a serious, this was not funny news. This was a serious article in the, in the newspaper. Okay. So we can go to this place of feeling isolated when in fact um, 
the, the opening into these aspects of dukkha dukkha is, as Ajahn Sumedho likes to point out, is actually can be something you can see it unifies us as human beings. He used to start his talks with, welcome sisters and brothers in old age, disease, and death. <laughs> like we're all going to go through it. You know, we are. Why be ashamed when we're sick or something is falling apart or we've lost our job or we've, you know, one of our really unpleasant mental habits has suddenly come out our mouth and now everybody knows really <laughs> what a mess we are. <laughs> you think they didn't know. <laughs> we're the only one who's pretending we don't know. But th- this is life. We're all sharing in it. We're all sharing in it. Really, it doesn't have to be a way to be ashamed or alienated, but a way of connectedness, of unity, of, of, non, uh, of inclusion. Not non-inclusion, inclusion. This is really the heart of empathy that arises from a deep understanding of suffering in our own experience. And this heart of empathy is the heart of compassion. Dalai Lama talks about this a lot. So... This quality of denial, just no, this isn't happening. It's not supposed to be happening. Only good things are supposed to happen. And if it's, if it's wrong, and however way our mind works with it, that's one basic element of delusion, of moha, that serves the purpose of keeping us just from recognizing accurately. It comes from the belief as, I think, Char, um, I think Joko Beck said this, or anyway, is that the belief that I can somehow hold myself separate from this unpleasant and difficult experience. Have you noticed that? Just in practice here, this is what I love about being on retreat. You can have simple examples, you know, and you'll, and you'll come and go, well, I'm all upset, but the, the thing I'm upset about is so stupid. And we go off into how stupid the thing is. Never mind it's stupid. Turn around and see, this is how the mind works. This is a great place to see. No, I think I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant experience, which might just be a recurrent sound that we hate. We experience it as unpleasant. The last thing we want to do is just open with awareness into the experience of hearing. I don't want to hear that sound. I don't want to hear that sound. I don't, you know, and we do all the stuff we do not to have to just open into hearing unpleasant. When there's a moment that we can do, and you can't do it by, you can, by an act of will, try to do it, but you're still caught in the unpleasantness. But the moment when something lets go and you just drop into, okay, unpleasant sound is like this. You get a sound, oh, that's just what's happening. Unpleasant doesn't have to morph into pleasant for everything to be okay. That's just how it is. Unpleasant is like this, but we can't hold ourselves separate. We think, you know, we can rearrange the world to stop it. Because I know we've talked about this, but secretly, way in the back, and I find it comes up in my mind all the time too, despite everything I know, even cellular, secretly it'll come up. It's all about heading for pleasant. It's all about moving in the direction of more and more pleasant experience. No one comes in and complains when you've had a really pleasant sitting, do you? You don't come in and go, my practice has gone to hell. I was just sitting there and it was bliss and there was no pain. It's really, it's horrible. It's, it's a rare being who comes in and complains about that, right? But that, you can, we can spend, you know, days lost in that, cultivating wanting. So this is this uh, really deep, habit of our mind, 
of aversion to the unpleasant. And, um, oh man, I'm never going to get through this all. Um, one of the suttas, I was mentioning it in a, in a meeting with someone the other day that I love, where the Buddha talks about this habit, is one of the two darts, where he's talking about, and this is so poignant to me, that they, a, a normal worldling, an unenlightened person, the only escape they know from unpleasant feeling is to go lusting after a pleasant sense experience. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and that's like, in, in, in the world, without opening to understanding our mind and heart, he's saying that's the only escape people know. So something's unpleasant. It could be vastly unpleasant. You know, you see that. Or just a little bit unpleasant. You know, you're just a little bit unpleasant at home. You jump up and go to the fridge or get on the phone or, op- you know, turn on the TV or whatever. Just to not... Or here, you go into a fantasy. Have you noticed that? Pleasant fantasy, you come back, what's going on? Well, my little finger's a little tight. You know, it's unpleasant. I mean, I've had that experience. <laughs> really. It's just the habit of mind. So the only escape a worldling knows is to lust to go for pleasant experience. So that becomes a habit that underlies the mind, the Buddha says. The avoidance, the resistance to unpleasant, and the lusting after pleasant, and not understanding what's going on. This is so deep. But the willingness to just, with our steady, mindful awareness, just meet each experience equally, is what's, that's breaking that habit. And it's what lets us start to see how that habit's working. It's like, wow, you know, wow, look at that. And we can do it the other way too, not always going for the pleasant, but this is one of the ways we sometimes get into kind of dharmically in our practice misunderstanding dukkha. You see, well, <clears throat> okay, it's not about chasing after the pleasant. And this is another second aspect of the truth of dukkha, right? The, the fact of change, iparinami dukkha where the Buddha said, well, Sariputta, who was the Buddha's chief disciple, in one sutta, he, he gives what's called his lion's roar of awakening. You know, just saying, yes, I know this is to be true. And one of the things he says in that is all feeling tone. So all feeling is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral in our mind, right? All feeling is included within dukkha. Now, if you think of dukkha just as suffering, that's, again, we're into, oh my God, he's saying there's nothing pleasant, there's nothing beautiful, it's all just suffering, it's all just horrible. This is the misunderstanding. But the second aspect of dukkha, unreliable, nothing to hold to, is that it changes. That there is beautiful in this world. There is happiness in sense pleasures, in, in um, beautiful experiences. The Buddha's not denying that at all. It's only, and then Greg said this last night, when we ask from them something they can't give, a reliability, a lasting happiness, a sense of self-gratification, when it goes, as the Buddha said, separation from what is loved, that will happen. It absolutely will happen to every single thing that any moment that we love. The same will happen with the moments we don't love because no moment lasts. Nothing lasts. We don't like that too much when it's pleasant. It's that unreliability, that nowhere to take a stand. So the Buddha is saying, or Sariputra, all feeling, all Vedana is included within dukkha in that it's unreliable. 
He's not saying there's nothing beautiful. In another place, a poetic translation of another sutta is, he says, um, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. Get the difference? So we're bringing in the steadiness of awareness, of mindfulness meets the unpleasant, meets the pleasant, meets the neutral. Just being with what's presenting itself. This is this not being in contention with realities as presenting itself in this moment, <clears throat> any of the changing sixth sense experiences. This is why the emphasis on the steadiness, the continuity. The more and more the mindfulness starts to get its own momentum through all the activities of the day, there's no way you cannot notice Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, just changing all the time. They're all happening, you know? And so if we are avoiding the unpleasant glomming onto the pleasant, we're never going to see accurately. We keep on spinning in this cycle of unsatisfactoriness. So this sense of just landing in this moment as it is, and then this moment as it is. Not trying to explain it all or just here, here, here. That steadiness of awareness reveals the way things are. And then that sense of I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant experience starts to drop away. But we're so deeply, you know, conditioned, really a lot of, I, a lot of fear of unpleasant and pain. <laughs> I certainly have. And I'm not saying we should now be able to say, okay, now I'm just going to open to all the suffering in my life, all the suffering in the world in this moment. We can't do that by an act of will. And there's definitely many times when the degree of emotional pain or physical pain or mental pain that's arising in my heart-mind, in my body at this moment, is occurring more strongly than in that moment the strength of the awareness to meet it. But that's a momentary thing. We tend to go, well, that, that's just too much. I can't be with it. It's over, you know. But I know I'll go back to migraines because I get them. There's, I remember years ago when I, it was just so unbearable. I would just like roll around, you know, and it's like unbearable. I just wanted to not be conscious at all, you know, or just out of it. I'm not still saying I don't like them, but I can see a real shift. At times, everything's just moment to moment, nothing steady state. But there's times when there's that that pain, and instead of the mind going, oh my God, this is unbearable, I can never be with this moment, it's just, it's just what it is. I'm not analyzing or trying to do or trying to get compassionate or trying to do anything. But just the, the, the habit of heart, of mind, of total aversion and fear to the unpleasant is, is much less strong than it used to be at moments. And then there's times you can, okay, it's like this. You know, I'll be going around doing what I'm doing and, you know, sometimes having fun and talking and this, and then there'll be a, a lapse where it's like, oh my God, shoot myself, you know, and that'll come in. And then there'll be times when the, the mind can be with it again. And the bigger picture, knowing this is seeing how the mind works is also part of awareness. Not having some um, idealistic view, which we can also get lost in in practice. Okay, now I know I should be with everything that's occurring, and if I get into aversion, that's bad. I'm wrong. I didn't do it right. We're back to the same old, same old, taking it personally. Aversion is unpleasant. I did it wrong. I should be able to always be perfect. It's so slippery, huh? It's so slippery how these things come in. So, one way 
that um, I've noticed this kind of misunderstanding, uh, this more like in a dharmic way, for, is, is when we start to hear all feeling is included within dukkha. And we taste for ourselves also um, kind of the, the pain that comes with attachment to pleasure. We start to maybe see, or maybe we didn't see it before, but we start to see at times how the habit of mind goes chasing after one pleasant experience after another. And there's times when we just see, but this is going nowhere. So rather than just noticing that, the mind flips into aversion to it or to one's, oh my God, and how, I, I wouldn't be surprised if everyone here has had this experience. We have it a million times. We start to see craving. We go, wow. Then we start to see it 10 billion times a day. Anyone have that experience? And then we think, this is horrible. This is hopeless. This is endless. Oh my God, I have so much craving. I'm a horrible person. So, you know, that's where we go. So self-judgment is just aversion. Denial of the first noble truth. Stuff's not supposed to happen. So anyway, this kind of, some people then almost start to shy away from connection with beautiful, with pleasant when it's happening. Almost like unconsciously but deliberately noticing more the unpleasant in practice and think somehow that's a kind of, uh, of wisdom. Think, well, it's all going to end anyway, so there's no point even bothering with the pleasant, with the beautiful. It's all just going to die. <laughs> I've been through stages like that in practice. We used to uh, call them dukkha stages. I thought it was, I thought it was you know, a sign of uh, a real uh, a mark of, of cleverness, but it wasn't. It was a mark of ignorance. But like, for example, there's one stage in practice where you're really seeing a lot of Endings of things. You see the beauty, the pleasant, you see it go. You see the unpleasant come, you see it go. There's just like nowhere to stand. And I remember I walked into my room where I was practicing a, a long self-retreat and I had a, you know, a nice plant hanging up and my mind goes, it's just going to die. <laughs> In no sense, you know, I went, oh, that's not, ah, it's just going to die. Yeah. I see, uh, I remember a couple had just gotten together on staff at IMS. They're walking down the driveway holding hands. Ah, give them six months. You know? <laughs> And this just kind of how the mind kept doing this, you know, and uh, thinking it was a sign of cleverness. I'm not getting attached because I know it's all going to change, you know. It's a phase. If you could skip it, may you. Um, So it's to the steadiness, appreciating the beautiful, but the wise one does not strive after it. Recognizing the unpleasant, but the wise one doesn't have to run from it. Recognizing the neutral, not making anything of it. Steady, steady, steady. And we learn to recognize, and this is where we really start to see the nature of our mind and heart, the nature of reality. The Dalai Lama again. Buddhism essentially consists of two things. The view, which means a definitive understanding of the interdependence of all things. And action, which can be loosely defined as nonviolence. But if one were to summarize the Buddha's teaching in one word, we would have to say that it is universal interdependence 
of which nonviolence is a natural consequence. We start to see things as they really are when we're not so caught in the unconscious habits of preference and fear and denial. Unfortunately, the only way to that is through the practice of really opening wholeheartedly into this moment as best we can. And this moment and this moment, whatever, however subtle, however gross, it doesn't matter what's happening. That moment where we just meet experience, not to fix it, not to have a great insight, just to be here. That's a shift in that moment from the habit of aversion and clinging and delusion to that open-hearted, clear mindfulness. The Buddha said, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. One's own good or the good of others or the good of both. That's, uh, I think, another poignancy in our habitual habit of response to the difficult, the, and I mean the really difficult, and even the little nudgy difficult, that sense of keeping separate, bad, wrong, uh, get away, not seeing, that because that, whether it's all the way to, you know, fear, hatred, revenge, or just the subtle, uh, no, let's pretend this isn't happening. But those are forms of dosa, forms of ill will, that keep us from being able to recognize as it really is the interdependence of all things, and we can't see even our own good or the good of another or the good of both. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct knowledge, direct seeing, and then response out of a mind, our heart, just in a moment. And we can't always tell whether it's got filled with ill will or wanting or not. But that's what we're learning here. In all these little, simple little moments, that's why... You know, if we just, every time we were uncomfortable, we fixed it all. We try that. That's our basic way of going through life. That's part of the structure of retreat. You know, you sit, you walk. So we have to look at this stuff. Not like a forcing, but to really understand. So don't believe anything you read or anything I say. I'm just trying to encourage us all to keep looking, to keep seeing, so that we're not blinded. The truth reveals itself moment after moment after moment, this, this noble truth, when it's understood, this noble truth of dukkha, of this unsatisfactoriness running through, recognizing it just in a moment, in that moment has the potential to really release our heart and mind from this cycling confusion of suffering and hatred and isolation and alienation. It doesn't have the power to make everything okay in the world. It doesn't have the power to make everything okay in this mind and body. By okay, I mean pleasant, right? Nothing going wrong. But it has the power to shift our whole understanding of what peace is, what freedom is, of what suffering really is. All right. (laughs) Okay, editing, editing. I just can only, (laughs) a little bit about the third type of dukkha and another aspect of delusion, which is inattention. 
Again, why we emphasize the steadiness of awareness. So inattention, where we just don't notice stuff, right? The third aspect of dukkha, a sankara dukkha, which you could say, uh, different ways of describing it, and this is kind of subtle, don't, don't go wacko thinking about it, but the perpetual incompletion, things come together and go apart. Another way of describing it is um, kind of the, mm, the relentless nature of life. You have to get up, and you have to brush your teeth, and then you eat, and then you have to brush your teeth. Now, that doesn't have to be aversion, but it just keeps on going like that. You get up, and you have to pee, and then you have to drink something, and then you have to pee. And then you have to drink something, and then you have to take a shower. And then, you know, it just... (laughs) That's what life is like every day. And there's, like, a lot of inattention to that. Now, then people hear again, like a misunderstanding, okay, so I should notice every moment, oh, oh, it's unpleasant, I have to pee, and you have to go. It's not that. But it's to stop... um, kind of making things up and wondering why we're not satisfied with life. Like, you know, have you ever gone on a vacation in a lovely spot and some of the moments are beautiful and some of the moments are nice and some of the moments you don't feel good and some of the moments you go out to dinner and you really weren't in the mood and the conversation isn't nice and you didn't like the food, but you're in Italy, you know, for God's sake. And so, you know, you got to really appreciate it. You're in a beautiful spot. It doesn't matter if you're really unhappy that day. You just, so you gloss it over. You don't know. You come back and go, that was a great vacation. You know, it was a great vacation. <laughs> just this overarching thing, you know? So what you can do here, just explore eating. <laughs> Eating's a great place, you know, unless if you have huge issues about it, don't use that. Use something else. Explore sleeping or whatever. But something that in our mind we go, oh, that's great. That's really where I have happiness. So chew that next time they serve like a chocolate brownie or something. Notice, how long is that when you're chewing on it? How long does it really taste good? (laughs) Chew, chew. There's two chews and then it's just a you know? (laughs) Do we keep paying attention then? No. We start thinking about the next bite, don't we? And we think about the next bite till this mass of glob is gone and then we go for the next bite. We go, that brownie was great. You know? And we wonder, you know, why we're not quite in alignment with reality. (laughs) Then you think, I don't want to look that closely. No, (laughs) we may not. But believe me, that's really more freeing. (laughs) Then you can eat as much brownie as you want without it needing to give you more than it can give you. But it can give you what it can give you. And then you can put it down when you've had enough. You know, just an example of this kind of... uh, um, (laughs) <laughs> That's Sankara Dukkha, okay? And the delusion part is we just don't pay attention. We just, there's just this inattention. So this is what keeps us in the idea that we can have pleasant, 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 because we're just not really noticing the alternation, the ceaseless alternation. But it doesn't have to be a problem. It frees us. It really does. When I first started, my first three-month retreat I sat, I remembered, I don't have a big thing about eating, but still... I was always on time for lunch, put it that way. <laughs> and uh, there was one guy, I mean, he would come like strolling in 20 minutes after lunch started, and you know, some things would be gone, and I thought, God, he must be enlightened. <laughs> I, mean, I was like so amazed. I never really knew who he was, I didn't talk to him ever after, you know, but I just had this, oh wow, how amazing, he must be enlightened, you know. 
<laughs> and then, you know, 20 years later, whatever, I just noticed without even thinking about it, I would just, you know, come into the meal whenever I came into the meal. And if it was late and the beans were gone, hey, no big whoop, the beans were gone. <laughs> but it just really, you know, I could like it or I didn't like it, it really didn't matter. I mean, it was pleasant or unpleasant, but I wasn't like looking to it to give me other than it could give me. And there's like a, such a freedom around that. We still appreciate, but you're not looking for it to, you know. So that's a kind of, of a simple little example of how, how, how the steadiness of attention does free us. It doesn't like erode our enjoyment of life. It allows it to be more, more true, more natural, more connected. So I have two minutes to just mention again that opening to dukkha is not about passive resignation or non-action in our life in response to our own particular circumstances or in response to the world. That the, the seed, the beautiful jewel in the heart of understanding dukkha is compassion. Compassion, which is the, the Dalai Lama says, compassion develops through deep insight into what suffering is, and this comes from being with our own experience. Where else can we learn? And this naturally widens and strengthens with a sense of empathy, gradually spreads to empathy with all beings. And when we're able to just be present, just for a moment, don't make it your whole life, in that moment, without the need to correct samsara, that experience, in just in that moment of the purity of heart-mind that allows for clear recognition and seeing, that allows us, if the appropriate response is maybe there's nothing compassionately one can do, but bear witness. This is a deep expression of compassion, just to be with yourself in your suffering to bear witness to it, to be present with it. That's something many of you are talking about, rather than hating and blaming ourselves or trying to run away. Yeah, this really, sadness is sad. This is painful. This is an expression of the sadness that we all at times experience. Can I just be with it, with kindness? That's an expression of compassion. And when we can bear witness with ourselves, sometimes that's all we can do with another. But the difference between being able to be with someone as they're going through or maybe expressing their suffering from different from the need to fix it because we're uncomfortable. Uh, two different things. And then if there is appropriate action, when we're not uh, caught in reactivity, the response can be one of enormous um, activity, courage, wisdom, strength. It's not at all, compassion is not at all passive the understanding of dukkha without uh, needing to be in a reactive stance actually allows, for whatever way our personality wants to express itself as an expression in the world. So I just want to, well, just briefly end with reading uh, this. This is, was written by James Lawson, who was uh, the... Uh, the um, guider in nonviolent um, social action to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Nashville in 1959-1960. These were kids, you know, in college in Nashville, African-American young men and women, who they're the ones who 
actually organized and carried out the Freedom Rides um, through the South in the years after this. Incredible, incredible actions of courage and bravery based really deeply and really profoundly on love and compassion and nonviolence. Like as the Dalai Lama said, when we understand our inter- interdependence, nonviolence as a, as a way of action is the natural response. So I, I just want to read this really, just bits of it from James Lawson. He said, We affirm the philosophical or religious ideal of nonviolence as the foundation of our purpose, the manner of our action, Nonviolence, as it grows from Judaic Christian traditions, seeks a social order of justice permeated by love. Through nonviolence, courage displaces fear, love transforms hate, <coughs> acceptance dissipates prejudice, peace dominates war, faith reconciles doubt, mutual regard cancels enmity. Justice overthrows injustice. The redemptive community supersedes systems of gross social immorality. Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Such love goes to the extreme. It remains loving and forgiving even in the midst of hostility. It goes on, but that's like amazing. And knowing that that deep understanding, commitment to love and nonviolence and interdependence, which needs to be renewed moment after moment after moment, led to incredible actions of courage and bravery and, you know, essence to change injustice, based not in anger, not in hatred, but out of this understanding that comes, this love and compassion that comes from understanding, that comes from here in the way the Buddha teaches, just being willing to simply have the intention to try to land in this moment. That's all. You don't have to do it. You don't have to be perfect. Just the intention in this moment to be nonviolent towards your own experience. So let's just sit for a moment and thank you for your patient attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.